Friends, are uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. It's on page 966 in your pew Bible. You remember last week from Pastor Bert's memorable sermon that Jesus has died. He has been in the grave three days. Guards were set. The, the stone was sealed. And yet in the face of God's power is nothing more than spider webs in front of a train. Uh, and it may not have made it in the notes, uh, Pastor Bert, but certainly it was the topic of conversation on the way home in our, our car. So it was memorable to, to our kids, at least. Now, as we read this story about the resurrection, it's a familiar story to many of you in this room, probably to most of you in this room. And yet, as we read it, you'll notice some differences. You'll say, where is Peter peeking in the tomb? Uh, where is Mary thinking that Jesus is the gardener? Different th- things. And the fact of the matter is, That in the various gospel stories, all four gospels end with the resurrection of Jesus. But there's an intriguing, what one commentator calls an intriguing mixture of agreement and disagreement or difference, independence between the stories. So there's similarities between the stories, but there's different aspects to these different stories. And to some of you, with a certain kind of personality, I'll let you figure out who that is, that really bothers you. Okay, that why why are they different from each other? What really happened? But what would actually be the point to have four different Gospels if they were all precisely identical? What we have in the Gospels is not a videotape recording of what was there, just the sheer facts, as it were. What we have is four portraits of Jesus. They're all accurate, they're all trustworthy, and they're all reliable, but they're not identical portraits. We saw at the, uh, at the church show and tell a few weeks ago that we have a number of gifted artists in our congregation. Now, uh, if we asked all of them to paint the same thing, maybe we asked them all to paint Pastor Bird and hang his, wall, his picture on the wall uh, when he retires, as some churches do, the portraits would not turn out the same. But that doesn't mean one's wrong. They're different artists providing different portraits. And in fact, as... Uh, Dan Gibson can tell you from his years of experience as a lawyer, if you sit down and you talk to four witnesses and even their wording is identical, that sounds like a cooked up story. That we can recount things, four different people can all recount the same event truthfully, but they're never going to use the exact same words or highlight the exact same details. It looks like witnessing tam- witness tampering if they do. And so the, the mere fact that the, the stories differ in what they emphasize actually makes it more reliable, more trustworthy. What are the similarities? Well, none of the Gospels actually describes Jesus walking out of the tomb or how he got out of the tomb. They all agree that one or more women visited the tomb early in the morning on the third day. They agree that the tomb was empty and that these women encountered an angel or angels. Now, the fact that one Gospel focuses on Mary Magdalene in particular rather than the other women with her to me, seems to be no big deal. It's emphasizing one character uh, and not the others who are with her. Matthew has some distinctive features we'll notice, though, as we read this. He has an earthquake. He notes that it's the angel who, in fact, rolled away the stone. He talks about the effect all of this had on the guards. And he talks about the women meeting Jesus on their way back to Jerusalem. So there's similarities, but there's differences. Well, let us read together Matthew 28, 1 through 15. I'll read it to you. And then we'll reflect on this for a few moments. After the Sabbath, 
At dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said to you. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say this, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Well, in our text this morning, we see two very different responses to the same thing. We see, on the one hand, the women's response to the angel coming and announcing Jesus rising and their joy. We see, on the other hand, the soldier's response, trembling in fear. Our story is about two very different responses, although I'm sorry, kids especially taking notes, As much as I tried to massage this this week, the best I could get it down to is four points. So uh, it's, and I'm leaving stuff out. I'm realizing even as I'm rereading this that there's much more that could be said. Uh, There's four truths that we need to wrestle with in this passage that we need to grasp a hold of. The first thing I want you to notice is this. In fear, we can miss Jesus. In fear, we can miss Jesus. Our story starts out on the third day after Jesus' death, the first day of the week. The women go to the tomb. These women, we were told, are the last at the cross. In in chapter 27, verse 56, they were standing at a distance watching the burial. They were the last at the cross, and they're the first to the tomb. We, we, in chapter 27, verse 61, uh, these two Marys apparently followed Joseph of Arimathea and sat opposite the tomb, watching Jesus be buried and the stone sealed. And now after the Sabbath, they go back, they return to the tomb to see what's going on. Mark says to anoint, try and anoint the body if they can get into the tomb again. Uh, here it just says to see the tomb in Matthew. And as they approach the tomb, an angel of the Lord descends from heaven. 
He's described an appearance that sounds very like these various angels that Daniel saw. He looks like lightning. Remember that lightning storm we had a few weeks ago? Bright light shattering the sky. He looks like lightning. And his clothes are as white as snow. I noticed driving in this morning, there's new snow on the mountains, the fresh white snow. So bright white. And apparently this earthquake is caused by the angel's descent. Notice in verse 2, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended. I don't know quite how to picture that. Maybe, a, uh, you know, you see these things of, the, of a, 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 a lunar lander coming down and the, the rockets are blasting to slow down the space capsule landing on the moon and it kicks up all the dust, something like that. I mean, this angel's descending and it's shaking the whole earth as the angel descends. And then he rolls back the stone and he sits on it. I love this odd mixture here, this terrifying brightness of the angel, the earthquake at his descent, shaking everything. He rolls back this massive stone, and then he sits on it like a little boy perched on a garden wall, kicking his legs without a care in the world, that it's this odd mixture of awe-striking majesty and almost flippant carelessness. After all, this angel knows Jesus is risen, hope has come. In a sense, the cares of the world have been cared for. Notice, though, the angel doesn't come to let Jesus out. In the mystery of the resurrection, Jesus is apparently already out of the tomb. And in other accounts, it talks about him going through the locked door. So presumably, he can pass through this rock as well. Hopefully, that's not my phone, but don't worry about it. (laughs) Left in my coat somewhere out there. If if it's me, sorry about that. Uh, (laughs) The, uh, the angel comes to let the women see into the tomb and to give them a message. But I don't want to focus first on the women's response. I want to focus first on the guards' response. Our story tells about two responses, the women and the guards. So let's, let's think for a moment about the guards here. When the angel descends, the guards are so frightened, it says in verse 4, they become like dead men. And here's a strong note of irony, of humor in this passage. The guards are posted in order to guard the body of a dead man. And yet that dead man is now alive, and they are so frightened, they become like corpses, like dead men. And in fear, the guards miss out on Jesus. They hear the angel, but they're just afraid. They miss out on seeing him like the women do. In a moment, we'll look at how the women respond rightly, and they they do see Jesus. But first, we have to face this reality that in fear, we can miss Jesus. You may have even asked yourself some questions like, if I started to pray, does that mean I'm just talking to myself? Am I going crazy? Or if I sing at church, what will the people around me start to think? Or how would it change my life if I really started to believe this stuff? What would I have to give up? What would I have to do differently? And in fear, we can miss Jesus. Not only do they miss Jesus just because they're afraid and so are staying there, but some of the guards actually go ahead and spread a false story. We notice this in verse uh, 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city. It's interesting, I noticed some of the guards. Apparently not all of the guards. Perhaps some of the guards were like the centurion who, when they saw Jesus die, said, surely this is a son of God or the son of God. 
Perhaps some of the guards at the tomb, seeing this angel in the ground shake, didn't go back to the elders. At least that's what the text implies. But some go back and report to the priest what's happening. They tell the chief priest all that had taken place, not just that the tomb was empty, but apparently about the coming of the angel, the earthquake, and perhaps even the angel's message. And how does the temple leadership respond? That Jesus is raised from the dead is a resounding refutation of their views, right? They said Jesus is just a false messiah. He's stirring up trouble. He's getting us into trouble with the Romans. We've got to put him to death. Remember, the high priest says it's better that one man dies than the whole nation. Okay, so that's what they thought. But now Jesus is raised from the dead. And surely the honest thing to do would be to say we were wrong. We have done a grave uh, injustice here. This has been a miscarriage of justice. But it's not the route they take. In fact, they double down on their wrongheaded view. The good news is we know from the book of Acts that some of the Pharisees and the Jerusalem leadership eventually do become Jesus followers. But at this point, the temple leadership doubles down on their denial of who Jesus is, and they bribe the guards to spread the story that some disciples came and stole Jesus' body. Now, the, the, the guards misrepresenting uh, what happened and, and spreading this lie raises two issues that we need to face. First, we're faced with the question of the historical reliability of the resurrection account. Now, for some of you, you think, yes, Jesus rose from the dead, and I have no doubt about that. But I'm sure that there's others in the room who wrestle with it and think, did it really happen? Is this reliable? Is this trustworthy? And right here in our passage, we're faced with two competing accounts of what happened. On the one hand, Matthew says Jesus was raised from the dead by God. On the other hand, the temple leadership says some disciples stole Jesus' body. Ironically, the story that the temple leadership pays to have spread about is actually self-defeating. The guards are paid to say, we were asleep and they came and stole the body while we were asleep. But if they're asleep, how do they know what happened? (laughs) So even in the very story that they're spreading, it's self-defeating. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Ironically, the temple leadership paid to have guards stop the disciples from uh, stealing Jesus' body. And this is precisely the story they pay to say is what happened. That even though they set up guards and remember, uh, Pilate said, yeah, go secure the tomb as best as you can. And they secure it as best they can. Even though they secure it as best they can, they say, well, somehow the disciples snuck through. So what are we to make of this? If you're a genuine questioner, what are you to make of this? First, it's simply implausible that Jesus would have, or that, sorry, Matthew would have invented this story about the temple leadership and the guards colluding to spread the story that the disciples stole Jesus' body. If no one in the first century in Matthew's context in Jerusalem was saying that the disciples stole Jesus' body, why would he even suggest that this could be a possibility, right? If you're trying to win an argument, you don't suggest things that might defeat your case. So, The only reason Matthew would record this is because people were actually spreading around this story that Jesus' body was stolen by the disciples. So it's much more historically plausible to say, as Matthew says, that the story that Jesus' body was actually stolen was being spread in Jerusalem. 
And remember, Matthew is writing at the absolute latest within 60 years of the events, but for my money, probably sooner, 30 or 40 years after this happened. So there's still people around in Jerusalem that remember all of this. Now, why would anyone tell this story that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body? Well, there's only one reason you would tell a story like this. Because the tomb is actually empty, and you need to have some account of what happened to the body. So, as far as we can tell, and it's in history, that's what you always have to say. It's not hard and fast science. It's, it's, it's history, and it's a struggle. But as far as we can tell, everyone in the first century agreed the tomb was empty. The temple leadership agreed on it. The disciples agreed on it. It was just the account of how did the tomb become empty. That's the only thing they're disagreeing on. So then you have to ask yourself, which story is more likely? Is the guards' self-defeating story that they know what happened even though they were asleep? That while they were asleep, somehow these disciples snuck past professional soldiers, rolled a giant stone out of the way, and took the body out, all without waking these soldiers up? That somehow these disciples were hiding Jesus' body, and none of them gave up the fact that it was a hoax, even in the face of beatings, Uh, that you read about in the book of Acts, persecution, being cast out of their city, and eventually facing death. Not a single one of them ever broke and said, yeah, actually the body is in such and such a place. Is that more plausible? Or is it more plausible to say God rose Jesus from the dead? Well, there may be some of you in here who are still skeptical, but the fact of the matter is the only reason you would say it's more plausible, this temple story about Jesus' body being stolen, The only reason you could say it's more plausible is if you already are committed to a hard and fast view that there is no spiritual realm, no God, there is nothing except sheer atoms bouncing around causing things to happen. Uh, And if you think that, okay, but that is a metaphysical, dogmatic claim, more dogmatic than any claim I'm making this morning. So one reality we have to face is, what is this question about the historicity of these stories? And it seems to me that these stories, even in the sober uh, uh, accounting of a historian, seems plausible, as long as you're willing to accept there's a God. It seems completely plausible. But the second thing that we're faced with is that there is a temptation to deny Jesus. If the guards' story that they spread about is implausible, the story of the guards is very plausible because it reminds us so much of our own condition. Of course, you may not be faced with so crass a situation as being offered money to deny Jesus, but we don't make our decisions about our beliefs and our confessions in a vacuum, isolated from external influences. Rather, we make decisions in a context where we're constantly being faced with external pressure and temptation from all sides. There's pressure in all sorts of various social situations where it's expedient to keep quiet about your faith. There's pressure to not be a Christian so you can get ahead by conforming to various secular assumptions. The fact of the matter is, in fear, we can miss Jesus. Okay, that's the first big point. The second point, kids and everybody, but the second point, especially kids taking notes, in fear we can miss Jesus, but in obedience we see Jesus. In obedience, we see Jesus. Okay, the guards are afraid when this angel comes down. Notice that the women are also afraid. We're told uh, in in verse uh, 5 that the angel reassures them, don't be afraid. We're told in verse 8 that they leave being still afraid yet filled with joy. The women are also afraid. 
but they obey the message the angel gives them. Why are the women afraid? Well, they're afraid because the whole world order has been turned upside down. If Jesus raised from the dead, was raised from the dead, and is alive again, everything we assume we know about the world is somewhat shaken. It's relativized. It's turned upside down. I can think of two illustrations of this. One is uh, when I was doing construction years ago, I hurt my leg uh, pretty badly using a table saw. And now if you're wondering how that happened, you can ask me afterwards, and you know why I'm a minister, not a carpenter anymore. But uh, the bottom line is the guy I was working with he took me to the hospital, and we raced through stoplights. We drove on shoulders and in ditches to get around cars going slower. Now, that is not the way I would ever drive down a single-lane highway in any normal circumstance. But in, in the case of an injury or when your wife goes into labor, these sorts of things, it's like the one time that you actually do break all the traffic laws and speed and go quickly to wherever you're trying to get to because something has happened that relativizes all your normal assumptions Right? And the resurrection is like that. It relativizes all the normal assumptions about the world. The other illustration is a bit more crass, but maybe, maybe kids get the idea of it. Is this is what every zombie movie is about. Okay? Is you don't normally loot grocery stores, and you don't normally drive across country and steal cars and all these kinds of things. But in zombie movie-type circumstances where the dead are walking around the world again, you have to do whatever you can to survive. Right? Normal rules are thrown out the window. The world is turned upside down. And that's kind of what's happening here at the resurrection. The normal rules are thrown out the window. Up until now, dead people stay dead. And yet, in this case, someone is brought back to life. And there's a sense in which this is very frightening. Everything we assumed we knew about the world is apparently wrong. Now, the women are afraid also. But in Matthew, here he tells us that the angel speaks to them. In the book of Matthew, the only other place we hear about an angel of the Lord is back in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, where, remember, Joseph finds that Mary is pregnant and he's going to divorce her, but an angel appears to him and says, no, this baby is from uh, God, <laughs> and don't divorce her. And then again, he, the angel warns him, go to Egypt because Herod's still alive, and then he says it's safe to come back from Egypt. And So this angel gives Joseph warnings. So why did God send this angel to the women? Just as an angel announced Jesus' birth, so angels announced Jesus' resurrection. And the reason for this is that God always interprets his own work. Okay? God interprets his own work. This pattern of God interpreting his work really runs throughout the Bible. We see this pattern everywhere in the Bible, but especially clearly in the book of Exodus, where the Israelites go on this exodus from Egypt. Remember, there's all these ten plagues on the land of Egypt. But they're not just stories about some freak occurrences, frogs and flies and darkness, uh, and then Israel escapes. No, remember, if you read the book of Exodus, God tells Moses, I'm going to do this so that the Egyptians will see that I am God. And then he does it, and then God, through Moses, says to the Pharaoh, see, I did exactly what I said. That God tells all along that it's him doing it. And likewise, when Mary becomes pregnant as a virgin in Matthew chapter 1, an angel announces to Joseph, this baby is from the Holy Spirit, and name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And now again, at this miraculous resurrection, an angel is telling us how to make sense of it. And this is important that the angel announces to the women, because the tomb and the plagues in Egypt 
and the virgin birth, all these things aren't like some episodes of unsolved mysteries. Like here's some weird thing that happened and we don't know what it means. No, he says Jesus was cru- is crucified, Jesus is risen, just as he said he would be. And then he sends the women to tell others about this and they obey that. And that is when they see Jesus, when they obey the command they are given to go tell others. They head back to Jerusalem to go tell the disciples. In fact, it says that they hurried away. They ran to tell the disciples in verse 8. And while they're running to obey the command from God given through this angel, that is when they see Jesus. Now, if it was you or I, what would we do? Would we camp out at the tomb saying, you know what, I'm not leaving the tomb until Jesus appears to me and I can see that what you're saying is true? Would we demand proof? Or would we be willing simply to obey this message as these women were? The truth is it's important that the women obey before they see Jesus because it's precisely in obedience that we see Jesus. I'm not saying be a hypocrite and do Christian-type things even if you don't believe in Jesus. And I'm not saying that if you keep the Bible perfectly, you'll have some kind of a mystical vision of Jesus. But the fact of the matter is that there are some realities that you can only see from the inside. There's a difference between first-hand and second-hand knowledge. You can tell me what it was like to go out to a nice dinner this week, what the food was like, what the atmosphere was like, and how nice this dinner was. But that's not the same thing as me myself going to the same restaurant for a nice dinner and tasting the food for myself, smelling it, being in that nice atmosphere for myself, right? There's a difference between this first-hand and second-hand knowledge. And in a sense, it's the same way when we come to see Jesus. I can tell you about Jesus. You can check out books from our library and read about Jesus. You can read your Bible and get an idea of what Jesus is like. But you start to see Jesus, to get to know him firsthand for yourself, through an obedient life, through a life of prayer and spiritual disciplines, a life of submission to Jesus' instruction. You start to walk on the way that Jesus sets before us. And that's when you start to see Jesus more and more each day. It's in obedience that we see Jesus. Notice when the women run away, there's this peculiar phrase. They were afraid yet filled with joy. Sometimes we think of those as being very opposite emotions, that you can be afraid or you can be joyful, but they can't happen at the same time. And yet for these women, it's held together. They're afraid and yet filled with joy. And I think that's probably uh, something to keep in mind, especially as we move on to some of these next points here, is that oftentimes in the Christian life, we're afraid, we're hesitant, and yet we're also filled with joy, and we can have confidence in that. Fear and obedience are not mutually exclusive. They don't obey only once they feel totally sure of everything. They don't obey only once all fear stops. Even in the... Even when they still feel afraid, they obey and head back towards Jerusalem like they're told to. In fear, we can miss Jesus. In obedience, we see Jesus. Third, the risen Lord deserves our worship. The risen Lord deserves our worship. The women encounter here the risen Lord. This is a real, physical, concrete resurrection. The angel says he's not raised in some metaphorical sense, but he says he's raised from the dead. He's no longer dead. Now he's alive. The angel says Jesus is not here in the tomb. He's somewhere else. 
Well, that's what a body's like, isn't it? It's in one place, not another. He's not present in some mystical or general spiritual sense. He's not here. That means he's somewhere else physically, literally, in the body. And the angel says, look in the tomb. There's no body here. The body is alive again. And when the women see Jesus, they run up and grab his feet. Jesus is the risen Lord, and he's risen in the body, in the flesh. Why is that important? When someone dies, a a friend or a family member or spouse, in a sense we say they're still with us in our memory, right? We remember them. These various experiences we had with them shape who we are. And so in a real sense, they live on and are still with us. But it's not true to say we still have an ongoing relationship with them, that they still talk to us, that we can still relate to them once they've passed on. And yet Jesus is really, truly, physically alive again in the flesh. And so we today can have a real, true relationship with him. You can talk to Jesus. Jesus can talk to you. Jesus intercedes on your behalf. We have an ongoing personal relationship with Jesus. And what does that relationship look like? Well, the women show us right here. They see the risen Lord and they bow at his feet and worship him. Bowing at his feet, grabbing his feet and worshiping, it's a sign of deference. It's a sign of submission. They're saying, you are the Lord Jesus and we submit to you. We are your servants. Bowing is the posture of a servant. It's not only saying Jesus is Lord, but it's acknowledging that he is, in fact, God. (coughs) That he's divine. We were reading this week in our family Bible time in Acts chapter 10 when Peter comes to the house of Cornelius. And when Peter comes in the house, Cornelius drops to Peter's feet and starts worshiping him. And yet Peter right away says, stand up, don't do that. I'm a man just like you. The same thing happens later on. Uh, Paul is shipwrecked and the people start worshiping him. He says, no, we are just men. Don't worship us. But Jesus doesn't say anything like that because it's completely right that they worship him. He is the one that deserves worship. And so the risen Lord, if he is the risen Lord, and he is in fact the risen Lord, he is, I'm telling you that. If he's the Lord, that means we are servants and our right response to him is submission and worship. Jesus has risen again. He has conquered death. And so we no longer need to fear death. And for that, we worship him. As we read in Romans, we are raised with him to new life. And for that, we can praise him. He is God come in the flesh for our sake. And for that, he deserves our worship. The risen Lord deserves our worship. But the women don't just come to Jesus and worship him. Notice finally this fourth point. The risen Lord sends us out. The risen Lord sends us out. This angel comes down, it says, from heaven to the tomb to tell the women what's going on. Well, if God's sending an angel from heaven, couldn't he just as easily have sent this angel to Jerusalem straight to where the disciples are at? Couldn't he have sent angels to tell all the disciples wherever they were at? This is a strange thing. Why does he send the angel to the tomb and then the angel give the message to the women and the women pass on the message to others? And we have to admit, there's something just fundamentally strange about the way God works in the world, that he works through his people. 
God sends women who only saw an empty tomb and got a message from an angel to Jerusalem. Of course, on the way, they see Jesus for themselves. But initially, it's women who saw an empty tomb and had a message. Of course, there's a strong irony here, isn't there? That the temple leadership is sending out these guards paid with an enormous sum of money to spread lies. These women have nothing, and they're gaining nothing from it, and yet go to spread the truth. Now, you may know that uh, in the first century, uh, women were not considered well and didn't have high standing. And in fact, in some cultures, couldn't even give uh, official witness in a court case. And yet the first people to see the empty tomb and to see the risen Lord are women. As I said, this is a world turned upside down. Everything that everyone had assumed in the first century is turned upside down and thrown out the window. That the women who in, in culture's eyes would have been the very least in the eyes of the kingdom are the most important. And that God uh, chooses to send the angel to them first. Jesus appears to them. And then they are chosen to go and spread this news throughout Jerusalem and to the disciples. Now this is an important point for women to recognize is that it's, it's women who are sent out to, to tell the good news that Jesus is raised. But it's a good, good, good lesson for men as well. We need to reflect for a moment as we end that God sends, the risen Lord sends us out. So we need to reflect for a moment on your place in the mission of God. Now, if you're like me, your first thought is there are much more qualified people to go tell other people about Jesus that speak more eloquently, are much more persuasive, are much hipper, whatever it is. There's better people, Lord. Yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, consider your calling. And friends, consider your calling this morning. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, in this world, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The gospel doesn't spread through our eloquence, friends. It doesn't spread through our wisdom, through our power, through our wealth. The gospel spreads through our weakness, our foolishness, our poverty, our lowliness. We just need to be faithful to pass on the message God has given to us to pass on. We need to be faithful simply to say this. The tomb is empty. The Lord is risen. Death is conquered. Life has come to this world. Because it's not about us boasting about how persuasive we were at the coffee shop when we heard some people saying things and we corrected them and gave an eloquent speech in the coffee shop and everybody bowed down and started clapping about how great, right? That's not what evangelism looks like. It's not about us being eloquent and our, our rhetoric convincing people. It's about us simply saying, even in our weakness, even in our lowliness, simply saying, the tomb is empty, the Lord is risen, he has defeated death and won us life. So what's your place in the mission of God? Who do you need to tell? Who do you need to talk to? Maybe it's a neighbor over the fence that you bump into, or maybe it's something you, someone you work with at work or a classmate at school. Now, I, I know I'm saying this to you, and maybe you're thinking about people specifically right now, and you're feeling afraid, because that's how I feel when I think about telling uh, you know, our neighbors or someone about Jesus. But remember, the women, they're afraid, but they're also joyful, and they're also obedient. If you feel nervous about talking about Jesus, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. 
You can still have joy even in the midst of fear, and you can still be obedient even in the midst of fear. So friends, some of you are wrestling with this, and you're saying, the tomb was empty. What do I make of that? I'd urge you today, read through Matthew again. Think about it. The Lord is risen. Others of you, you know the Lord is risen. The Lord rises, and he sends people out. I don't want to steal Pastor Bert's thunder for next week with the Great Commission, but he sends out his disciples to make more disciples. You are being sent out into the world to tell people the good news. The Lord is risen. Let us pray. Almighty Father, you rose Jesus from the dead, raised Jesus from the dead, that he might conquer death and bring life and life abundantly to those who trust in him. Gracious Lord, teach us to worship rightly, that we might worship the risen Lord as we ought to. I ask God for those here who are wrestling with this, who are asking, can I really believe this? I ask even now that your spirit will be at work in them, drawing them to the truth of your word, convicting them of falsehood and of lies. I ask, Lord, for those here who need to come to the risen Lord and begin to worship him anew, and that as we worship the Lord, we would find confidence and joy. Even as we turn in a moment to sing together, we ask that our hearts would be stirred up with joy like these women running back to Jerusalem. Gracious Lord, you have sent us out into the world to bear witness to the good news that Jesus is risen. We ask that we would be faithful servants, that like these women who hurried and ran to Jerusalem to spread the good news, that we would be eager, that we'd be full of joy, that we would even run to tell others the good news that Jesus is risen. Thank you, Christ Jesus, that you took on flesh for our sake, that you died the death we deserved, that you rose again, in the body, are interceding for us now, and are our coming King. Amen.